Hello, and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 58. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hello. Today we'll be discussing the 14th episode of season 3, Infinite Possibilities, Daedalus Demands. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Infinite Possibilities Part 1. Talon John is being called by the Ancients and receives a visit from Jack. Jack reveals that someone has been piloting a copy of John's module into proto-wormholes. Quickly they discover it's furlough, the mechanic from Till the Blood Runs Clear. They plan an assault on her compound and find out that she's been captured by the Charids, a species allied with the Scarens. Jack and John need to build something that will defeat a Scarin dreadnought and get rid of Harvey in this action-packed episode. The Talon crew jumps on the wormhole bandwagon, and we return to Dambada from Season 1. Or if you remember this planet, it's the one where the solar flares from the sun can create lots of wormholes, and it's also the planet where Xan went into photogasms. Uh, The episode is all action and exposition, and we've got a new set of alien bad guys, lots of explosions, and of course the delightful return of Furlough, who is one of my favorite one-off characters. And I know we've talked about her before, but she is just so much fun to watch. She's definitely a highlight this episode. In a lot of ways, it's really refreshing to meet a character whose motivation can be summarized by money and watching my own back, you know? And money. (laughs) And money. <laughs> yeah. So I think that in, in the Farscape crew, which is a lot of people with like tragic backstories and complicated histories, she's just so funny and fun and different. And she just mm-hmm. rings really true. Like she's somebody that survived on this harsh desert planet and she's made a pretty good living out of it. Yeah. And the other thing I like about her is she's very smart, both as a as a mechanic and a and a person who is basically reinventing a wormhole machine, like how to create wormholes from John's research and how to fly through them safely, because she develops the this phase stabilizer and it's kind of the centerpiece of the episode, and we'll get into more detail later. But several episodes ago, when we cut to uh, Scorpius and his science research, that's what they're trying to build: is something to stabilize the phases within a an, an, uh, wormhole so they can fly through it. Furlow did that on her own, in a backwater, basically from very sketchy notes from two years ago from John Crichton. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Well, and okay, here's the thing I was realizing about Furlough. We met Furlough before John met the ancients, right? So Furlough actually, I mean, I would argue is probably smarter than John in almost some ways because she took the notes he gave her and the data he gave her and managed to create this thing that John, with the ancient's knowledge in his head, and Scorpius, with the ancient's knowledge in his head, also couldn't create. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I'm like, when I realized that Furlough essentially had done this completely on her own, just with data and her knowledge of mechanics, I was like, dang, if she put her yeah. mind to like doing good things, <laughs> she could really <laughs> do a lot of good. Yeah. No, she's brilliant. And I love her for it. And she is unapologetic about it. Like Mm -hmm. she knows what she wants. She's going to invent this thing that's going to make her a lot of money, sell it to the highest bidder. Done. She's rolling in the cash. And I kind of love that she's so mercenary about it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Mercenary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Furlow. So the episode opens on John teaching Aaron to read in English, but because they're both speaking in English, at first it's a little unclear, but yeah, he's teaching her to read in English and it's adorable. It's super cute. They kind of have a conversation a little bit about Earth, and then they're talking about how John is feeling this homing signal from the ancients, and he's really wanting to go look for them, and she's kind of like, why? And he's like, I don't know. I just really want to. And he says at one point, I know everyone thinks I'm crazy, and he asks, do you think I'm crazy? And her reply is, I've always thought you were crazy. So there's a little bit of, of that back and forth, too. But it's a really domestic scene because it's very clear that they're comfortable with each other, comfortable with each other's bodies because they're curled up around each other, and that they're in this romance and this partnership together. And that's another one of the kind of the touchstone themes of this episode and this and the second part of it is the two-parter of is the two of them being being partners and being together and how that plays out as they're you know, fighting bad guys and saving the world or the universe or whatever they're saving this week. Mm-hmm. So it's just really nice. It was a nice place to start out with them because it kind of ties the whole episode arcs that we've had since basically Green Eyed Monster of the two of them getting together. Yeah. And okay, this is, I'm going to say this a little early. This is not my rating yet, but it will kind of give you a prediction of my rating is that Farscape is one of those shows that even when it's not good, it's good. It's a little bit like leverage in that way, where even when it's like not their best episode ever, you're still like, this is still pretty good TV. So I think my palate had kind of forgotten what really good Farscape looks like, because Infinite Possibilities Part 1, this is just really good Farscape. And Mm -hmm. it does this thing where just like everything ties together, all the characters work, all the beats land. It's really good TV. So after this domestic scene, John looks out the window and he sees that same wormhole from, what was the name of the ancient episode? A Human Reaction. Human Reaction. He sees the same wormhole from Human Reaction and they run up to command And they're all kind of freaking out. And Rigel is like, oh, no, not this again. Because as we remember, (laughs) Rigel was dissected. Fake dissected. Okay. But But I think he still remembers. (laughs) He got to go to the back room. He got to go to the green room and basically gorge on Hynerian modules while John and Aaron and Dargo went through a traumatic experience of losing him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So... So Rigel knows what's up, and he's like, no, let's leave, and then Jack shows up. So Jack, if you remember, is the form that the ancient that has been in contact with John has taken to make it easy for them to communicate. So the ancients are these kind of spindly, brownish creatures with tentacles and like really wiry arms and legs and things. That's their true form, but they can they can assume other forms to, so it makes it easier. And also allows them to have people that look like John Crichton's father and have a human actor play the role. So he basically just pops onto command and everyone draws their gun, which is basically just means Crace draws his gun. And he accuses them of of sharing, accuses John of sharing the wormhole knowledge with people who are going to use it for destruction. And he can't allow that to happen. So he's like, well, I might have to kill you. 
this, of course, does not go over very well. Anyway, they kind of sort through all that. They figure out it's furlough. And the pilot in the, the module that Jack shows them is this new alien creature that they don't recognize, except for Rigel. He recognizes them. So let's play the clip that kind of goes through that, because it's got some really great Rigel and Stark interaction, as well as some other information. It was a Jared Stark, a frilling Jared. You're familiar with that species? Oh, a thousand cycles ago, the Jareds invaded Hynerian space. They killed a billion of my people, ate a million of our young. I'm sorry I didn't know. We finally repelled them with suicide attacks, wave after wave after wave, more death than even you could fathom, until we drove them off. But if they had wormholes, they could come back and... And attack us without warning and disappear before we could retaliate? We have no defense against that. Oh, I... I know a Delvian chant that is very calming in times of stress. Vaspaloba mishkithla nutrella. Say it with me. Stop it, you lunatic! Get it through what's left of that head of yours that this is serious! More serious than you can imagine. Unconfirmed intelligence reports suggest an alliance between the Chariots and the Scarons. So Rigel knows what's up. Again. And the Cherids, I love that there's this really rich backstory with the Cherids and the Hynerian people. I don't know. It's just like, it's not just a random group of aliens that are, are classically gross looking and military, but not, no, they actually have a military history that involves warfare that Rigel's been involved, you know, knows it from his history. And it's just, I don't know, this really great little, little world building tidbit that gives Rigel a really nice hook for his arc over these episodes. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's been a really long time since we've seen any Rigel growth or any real Rigel doing anything other than, hey, let's cut and run, which is something he actually <laughs> tries to do in this episode also. So, I mean, I'm not and, – and we've talked a lot about how much we love Rigel, so it isn't like I'm complaining about that, but I am really enjoying – seeing another side of Rigel because I think yeah. it's been it's it's been almost like a season since we it's had been any, a while yeah it's been a really yeah. long time yeah he got to show his his strengths in the look at the princess trilogy when he was being the master politician with the empress he took down Durka in he took down Durka in the in the liars guns and money trilogy that was pretty cool also, he got to be a little infiltrator and uh, and thief when in that episode arc as well. Yeah, but we haven't had this like I don't know. It feels really like really meaty Rigel stuff that he gets to play with in this episode, and it starts here with this this feud between the Hynerians and the Charids. Yeah, well, and it also reminds us of Rigel the ruler. Because this isn't just like, oh my gosh, they really hate Hynerians. But you can see that like when he's talking about billions of, he's really feeling that as like, as somebody who is in, who feels like he is the Hynerian Dominar. And so he is responsible for his people. And so his kind of feeling is, you know, if the Cherids, and he and Stark address this a little later, but his feeling is if the Cherids have wormhole technology, then they would be able to come back to Hyneria again and they would be unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And he's taking it so seriously too. And I love that little bit with Stark. It just makes me crack up where Stark is like, I've got the perfect Delvian chant for this situation. And Rigel is like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
And like Stark and his chance, it's like a running gag throughout these two episodes. And it is hilarious. Like every it single really time it, it, it happens, it's hilarious. So Chris shows up with the info that the Cherids are now aligned with the Scarens. So now we have another interesting puzzle piece fitting in because we already know that the Scarens are this huge and dangerous force. And we know from Incubator that the Peacekeepers do not have their nuclear weapon of wormhole tech that they've threatened the Scarens with to kind of say, hey, don't start anything with us. We've got this wet, we've got this wormhole tech. And so now there's this dangerousness of maybe the Scarens, who are already dangerous, overpowered, and more than the Peacekeepers, possibly getting their hands on wormhole tech. Right. And they are also the familiar enemy that we have come to know and love over the course of season three. So it's just layer upon layer of of threat about this wormhole technology that they absolutely must protect at all costs. And it's not just because Jack the Ancient has this moral argument of no one should ever have it, or the argument that we can't let the wormholes be used to find the ancients who have now resettled on a new planet. It is also because we have these superpowers that are now vying for it. Yeah, so that gives this episode just not only a lot of weight in terms of Jack possibly being a danger to the characters, but also this real external threat of the Scarens. So part of the reason that Jack is really afraid for this whole situation developing is because Jack stayed behind. His whole species went to this new planet or this new system. We're not sure where it is. They went somewhere else. And Jack stayed behind, essentially to pull the ladder up behind them, essentially. And so him finding out that the Cherids now have this this new technology really frightens him because he is scared that they're going to find the Ancients' new home and wipe out this already weak and dying race. John and Aaron point out that Furlough really isn't an overall bad guy, that she'll just sell things to the highest bidder. So they just plan to be the highest bidder when it comes to this wormhole tech that she has. Yeah. And so they get uh, together the armory, basically, as Aaron, as you know, will always go get all the guns. And before they head down, she and John have this really great conversation about what these wormholes mean for the two of them. So you think we really need all this stuff? I hope not, but we don't know what we're going to find. Yeah. Sorry to screw up your life again. Yeah, as long as you know it's all your fault. Me and my damn wormholes. Not all wormholes are bad. No, but uh, if I hadn't been hunting wormholes, we never would run into furlough or the ancients. You hadn't fallen into a wormhole, you never would have met. Rigel. Furlough, I would think, is a better match for you. You could pool your knowledge and chase wormholes all you want. Furlough, yeah, she's sexy. She's a good one to take home and meet the folks. What? You didn't think I'd plan on going home alone, did you? I haven't been thinking about it. I wouldn't want to do that. To go back alone. I wouldn't want you to. We should talk about this. Some other time? Yeah. Could do lunch. Oh, the two of them. They're just... I don't know. It's just so sweet. And you, have, you, can, you can hear their partner dynamics. You know how you get with somebody you're really close with. You get these little in-jokes and they, 
conversations get referenced that you have, have had before or are ongoing, like, you know, wormholes have ruined my life. Um, is kind of a callback to Aaron saying, you've ruined my life, John Crichton, in uh, Green-Eyed Monster. And then they get to this really serious little bit about John kind of throwing it out there that I wouldn't take furlough home to meet the folks, but I'd take you. Mm -hmm. And so it's this this real declaration of this is in it. They are in it for the long haul here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good point that her point of view about wormholes really has come around, you know, and... Far from being the feeling that they kind of had before where it was like, oh, John and his wormholes. I think that now that she and John are together, she sees she really is able to empathize with how important they are to him, you know, and she really is able to see that he wants to go home and she doesn't doubt her place with him anymore. You know, it isn't mm-hmm. it isn't it isn't really the same feeling that she had in Blood Runs Clear where she was like, so you're just going to take me. To this random place that you don't know I'm going to be welcomed and you're just going to take me there. But instead, now she's kind of in a place of like, I want to go with you. Not all wormholes are bad. If you're able to build them, you could take me home with you. Yeah, that's a really cool parallel to draw from the first time they're at this planet where they almost did go through at the very beginning. There was a moment when John almost tried to go through the wormhole and Aaron pulled them out. I was also thinking of earlier the episodes where Zan dies, self-inflicted wounds, where, you know, John gets a lot of flack for pausing to stare at the wormholes, you know, pausing to stare at the daisies and then the car ca- car crash happens, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, his obsession with it is something that she is finally, she's okay with his obsession with wormholes and where she's mm-hmm. in a different place with them now. Yeah. And I think a lot of it does have to do with just them being together. Do you know what I mean? And him showing her that he can prioritize her and still be obsessed with wormholes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's also about sharing your life with somebody, too. Yeah. I mean, she, they were, he was teaching her to read English. He was bringing her into his own culture, mm-hmm. you know. And since she has lost so much of hers, now that they are together, his seems like the safer choice, yeah. the place where they could be together. Yeah. So they go down to the planet. <laughs> they make like a three-person army. Make like a three-person army. I want to point out a couple quick things here. The first is that the flares are really bad for Talon. So Chris tells Talon, hey, as soon as we're gone, go into the planet shadow and hide and turn off all your sensors because he would be blinded by the flares. The second is that Aaron is passing out snow goggles to everybody on board and she gives them to Stark and Stark is like grabbing her hand and he's like thank you thank you thank you thank you and she's literally like don't touch me dude like please stop and so again with the Stark and the weirdness in Aaron yeah pretty much Crace, Aaron, and John make like a three-person army it gets a whole lot of chariots I've got to say like I was a bit side-eyeing the action sequence there because they kill a lot of chariots and shouldn't the chariots have at least shot them back and actually hit one of them it's like the classic bad guys can't hit a target good high guys hit all the targets Mm -hmm. but you know it's they gotta win well okay (laughs) but in their defense they are actually about to get overwhelmed by the sheer number of chariots and then Talon is freaking out because his two favorite people in the entire world are in this really dangerous situation. So even though Kreis is telling him, stay in the planet shadow, you're going to get blinded, Talon swoops in and blasts all the chariots. 
But then Talon is blinded, so now Crace is also out of the picture. So Aaron and Aaron calls to the pod, and Stark comes to pick up Crace, who's now blind, and also in an incredible amount of pain because he actually ripped out his hand of friendship. Is there a different word for that? I feel like they call it something <laughs> <No>. different. <laughs> they call it uh, neurotransmitter or something like that. Okay. <laughs> Transponder. 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 That's what it is. Okay. So yeah, the hand of friendship is like the dumbest name. <laughs> Sorry, it just is. <laughs> well, it sounds a- like you're going to give him a hand job. <laughs> I know. It's such a creepy name, too. It's like really menacing. The hand mm-hmm. of friendship from a warship. So, anyway, so now Crace is out of the picture. So then John and Aaron do like a single, like, they're like the two man army against this entirely well defended base. And so <laughs> they go in, they kill a whole bunch of cherubs, they find Furlough, who's tied up, and then they escape with her. They keep one for questioning, and then they decide they're going to defend the armory. And Rigel's like, hey, I'll take Chris back to the ship. And they're like, no, you're going to come here and help <laughs> us defend this armory. <laughs> Yeah, there's this great little line of of Stark being, of course, with his mask, trying to tell uh, Kreis that there's a Delvian chant to help him with his pain. And Rigel's rolling his eyes, saying, the half-blind leading the blind. So hilarious. <laughs> but on a more serious note, it actually, you know, it's, it's an interesting choice that John and Aaron make. And it's really Aaron making the tactical decision here that she wants Rigel on the ground to help them defend. And, you know, it's not the first time she's picked Rigel as a partner in in defending things. Like, in Crackers Don't Matter, mm-hmm. she's the one who's like, Rigel, you're on my team. Yeah. And I get it because Stark is so unreliable. Rigel, at least, is reliable enough to be in his self-interest to stay alive, right? Yeah. He will do what he needs to do to keep kicking. Yeah, Rigel and his self-interest. <laughs> so <laughs> another character who's self-interested is Furlough who tries talking John into <laughs> making the same decision that she has. What the hell is this? What do you think? A truly fine copy of your module. Got a nice detailed scan last time you were here. Yeah, when you ripped off all my data. You know, you're going to have to let that go, Johnny. Point is, I flew through a wormhole four times. And not just a wormhole, a proto-wormhole. Unstable as all flits, didn't even muss my hair. How long have the Cherids been here? I hired them for security. They even did the first test flights. Then a couple of solar days ago, the blotchers double-crossed me. Killed all my techs. Tried to torture the secret out of me. Get the passwords to my computers, but uh, I'm tougher than they thought. Right. Oh, one more thing. What? Thanks for the rescue. Furlough. I love her. That noise at the end was her giving John a kiss. And the face he makes afterwards. (laughs) He was not best pleased by that. So Furlough here, basically giving us exposition. As I said, action and exposition is this episode. So this is basically her version of what she's been up to why she's been here, what she's been doing with the module to make wormholes and whatnot. And a little bit after this, she asks John to say, hey, so you want to go in with me on selling this to the highest bidder? We should get out of here, take it and run. And so it's very much like 
her brilliance on display here because like yeah I, I built all this i got this whole operation going only bad luck had them double crossing me and oh by the way now that you saved me let's go finish my plan mm-hmm. which is make lots of money yeah furlough essentially bought the chariot's loyalty and then they double crossed her and it's i don't know it's just like furlough and money again i think that that's kind of this theme throughout the episode is like mm-hmm. her just having an entirely different set of values and self-interest than them because yeah. all of them are kind of talking about this as you know Rigel's coming at this as you know the Cherids wronged my people a long time ago John is coming at it as hey Jack says that you know nobody should have wormholes and I'm kind of agreeing with him because I don't really understand it yet and Jack is kind of coming at it from this high and mighty like you know no one should have this technology because it could be a weapon and then Crace and Aaron and are, and Stark are kind of like, ooh, Scarens are bad. This just kind of seems like a bad thing overall, you know? Yeah. Whereas Furlough is like, so I basically forced you to give up all your research. I lied to you and told you there would be solar flares for four more cycles because that comes up again until the bloods run clear that she says there would be no more solar flares. And here she's like, yeah, I lied. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to go away. So, yeah, that's that's her motivation there. Yeah, it's just this complete self-interest and money. But at the same time, she's also comes across as someone you can work with. Mm-hmm. Like she is she's not out to get them. In the same way that some other people might be, or at least she doesn't appear that way. Mm-hmm. She is she is the one who's like, so my self-interest right now is to, you know, chop off this or beat this scare into death that you captured and continue making money. And mm-hmm. if that working with you is what will get me there, if you want to be my partner, great. Let's do it that way. Yeah. Yeah, the whole money thing is really part of who she is. And also just the, I I like how you put it, that she's a bad guy that's not really a bad guy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Like you really can get her. Yeah, you really can get her, you know? And, you know, she reminds me a little bit of, oh, that character we just met last episode in Scratch and Sniff. Raxel. Raxel. Yeah, she reminds me a little bit of Raxel because in both ways, it's like just people who have their own sets of motivations And I think that one of the problems a lot of times with fiction in general is that occasionally there will just be like this character that helps the heroes or hates the heroes. And there's really no external motivation for this. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to help you. You know, like, okay, Han in Tokyo Drift is a really good example. (laughs) Like he just helps him. Because he's helping him? Because somebody in the plot needs to help him because the character is so hapless that he needs help kind of thing? Or, you know, a lot of villains tend to do this where it's like, they just hate the, you know, they just hate the hero. They're just going to kill the hero for really no reason, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Furlough's got some good motivations. And speaking of good motivations, we also have Rigel, who Mm -hmm. does indeed join them in the bunker. And he goes off and chats with the Cherid that they left alive. And it's, God, I love Rigel here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of dark and twisted, but also very Rigel. So I'm just going to play that clip. A Hynerian. Good timing. I'm hungry. Pity you're so aged. You won't be so tasty. Don't glare at me. I'm not impressed. You think a Hynerian could ever frighten me? I'm not here to frighten you. No, 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 no. Then what? To question me? Plainly, you are unaware of our superior 
resistance to pain. Actually, I do know something about Charon physiology, just as I know something about your weaponry. <coughs> this Raktor, for instance, contains neural circuits that inflict ten times the normal pain, designed to be effective even against your own kind. The others want me alive. Yes. Well, plainly you're unaware of one more fact. I don't give a Garantus perhaps what the others want. Yeah, and we are reminded that Rigel will go off on his own and do what he wants to do and torture the poor Charid until he gives up the information that the Scarin Dreadnought is five hours away or six hours away. And Erin, when she finds out, gives him this look, but ultimately doesn't protest either, you know? Mm-hmm. So, well, he got more information know. than they did. Yeah, pretty much. But I just love that Rigel is just like, huh, opportunity here to kill a Cherid. I'm going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me, though, how old is Rigel again? He's like at least 200 cycles. I think 250-ish. Okay. Because I was going to say, this is... the. It's interesting to me, then... That the Hynerians still teach, you know, this is how you kill a Charid. They have, like, <laughs> you know, essentially that the Hynerians aren't stupid. This is a species that wiped out a billion and of them and then a whole bunch of their young. And so they're a, you know, they still teach how do you defeat a Charid. They still teach mm-hmm. information and strategy about Charids. And, and Rigel still has this passionate hatred of them because I think that mm-hmm. his species is so long lived that it almost still feel very recent yeah yeah and also who knows they might still be a, a current threat on the on the foreign policy landscape of the Hynerian empire too mm-hmm. so the charids are mortaring them i don't know that that's a verb but the charids are <laughs> launching bombarding them yeah, with mortars bombarding yeah. them with mortars furlough isn't worried because she keeps saying that oh my entire compound is all booby trapped and the only reason that the chariots got me was because they got me in atmosphere when I was, you know, in the modules. So, mm, gonna gonna keep that in mind. And <laughs> but John and Jack are obviously really worried about everything. And that's when essentially they let her know that they're gonna blow up everything if the chariots get through. And you can see that she's not taking that really well because John and Jack are essentially like, "Here's some bombs that we're gonna put on top of." the module and the magic machine that furlough built. And, and that's when she kind of gets this look on her face of like, you can see her mm. making, you can see her making all of her different plans right here. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she is a smart cookie and she has her own self-interest as we've said squarely in front of her. Mm-hmm. We mentioned that Rigel really likes to take care of himself. And maybe one of the reasons that Aaron chose him over Stark was because she knows that he'll at least act in his own self-interest to keep alive. And this is where I think she just makes such a smart strategic decision because she puts Rigel in a little turret out in front of the compound. So now in order to watch himself and in order to keep himself alive, he has to keep the rest (laughs) of them alive by using this turret really efficiently. And they have a little conversation about it that I want to play because it's how she talks him into doing it. What's this? It's an automated gun turret. Well, it doesn't look like it's working. Well, the targeting system's gone, but everything else is still intact. You can operate it manually. 
I can. Yeah, that's where you reload. This is aim. And this is fire. Now, if you can't actually hit anything, just make sure you force the chariots to keep well away from us. Uh, where will you be? I'll be somewhere else. Oh, well, we'd work better as a team. Well, you didn't need any help when you were knifing the chariot. This is different. I'm unprotected here. What happens if they fire in a mortar shell? Well, that's simple. You'll die, so keep them back. You keep them back. You're the artillery expert. Tell me something, Rigel. How many Hynerians perished in the suicide attacks when they repelled the chariots? Millions upon millions. Any of them volunteer, or were they all forced? Why? I'm just curious to know whether sacrifice and bravery are Hynerian concepts. Show me how this works again. That's your reload, that's your aim, and this is your fire. Goodbye. Yeah, like we said, this is a really good episode for Rigel, because you can feel here that even though he must understand that she's manipulating him, there's also is this kind of moment you feel where Rigel really is like, upset about the sheer numbers of Hynerians that died when their war with the with the Chariots. Mm -hmm. And he wants to live up to the Hynerians that repelled them. And the other thing that struck me about this is that Aaron is doing something that Zan would have done. Like she's appealing to his better nature and these ideals that he usually doesn't acknowledge that he knows exist mm -hmm. whereas Zan could almost always get him on these things Aaron has learned that she can she can get him to do things based on these ideals as well and I think that's kind of a, a nice evolution of Aaron and Rigel's relationship because that's really grown a lot over the seasons too yeah and it is interesting because when Zan died her interaction with Rigel had kind of been where he he came to her and was like, have you ever have I ever told you how much I appreciated your counsel? You know, she's like, yes, every time that you listened to it, every time that you accepted it. And mm -hmm. so you can kind of feel that there is that same kind of moment here of him kind of listening to what Aaron is saying and then acting based on mm -hmm. what she has told him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this really nice little little moment. I also just love. Aaron being so businesslike about the about the turret. Here's how it works. I'm going to show you how it works. I'll show you again. No questions asked. And how she's pointing out also that she, he had no problem killing one chariot in cold blood, even though he's exposed here. Here's an opportunity to kill more. Mm -hmm. Which actually is really hilarious because when she comes to check on him later, he's like, "Look at all the you know the hill is essentially littered with all the dead chariots that he's killed," and he's like, "Yeah, he's like I'm really beginning to understand this." killing yeah thing. actually let's go ahead let's go ahead and play that quote it happens a little while later she's checking in on him giving him more ammunition and he is having a grand old time about time you let two through two but i turned at least 12 of them into sand stains ah here comes number 13 ah! oh miscalculated the windage next time i'll get him I ever tell you about Rigel the Ninth? No. <laughs> Single-handedly led the climactic charge at the Battle of Katrine. He was a hero? He was a moron. Dominars are far too valuable for combat, much less front lines. But, you know, strangely enough, I think I understand why he did it. <laughs> Second try! <laughs> Taste this bloodsucker! We'll make a soldier out of you yet, Rigel. Well, don't think I'm going to make a habit of it. Hmm, now! Oh my gosh. Oh my god. <laughs> he is having so much fun. It's ridiculous. Killing Charids, counting his kills. 
Oh, the cackling. It's really, really great. I love that it's this moment where you see how clever Rigel actually is. Like, she essentially was like, okay, here's a big gun, you know, figure it out. And anybody who's ever played a video game knows that, like, a lot of times (laughs) when you're given, like, a brand new random weapon, it does take, like, a little while to figure out how to use it. And Rigel's already on, like, windage and, like, (laughs) figuring out, you know, he's just got it down. He's great. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, distances and all that. And it, I think it's cool that he's also referencing his ancestor, Rigel the Ninth. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've heard him do that before, like the great Rigel the First that mm-hmm. Zan used to get him to be noble and whatnot. And here he's recalling one of his military heroes. And I like how how Aaron kind of perks up at it too. He's she's like, oh, you had you have a hero too, <laughs> you know, <laughs> her own little like fascination with military heroes but yeah it's like Rigel's like yeah he was a moron for going out there but I, I think I get it and it's just like that whole the whole fervor of battle and everything and I don't know it's just a really great little scene mm-hmm. well and also I like that she says we'll make a soldier out of you yet it really calls back to Durka Returns when she compared him to a or when he compared himself kind of to a peacekeeper essentially when they were both kind of trying to be like hey, good job in that whole Durka situation. (laughs) And then they ended up kind of coming to it as like, oh, okay, well, both of us kind of insulted ourselves and each other in this comparison. (laughs) But I don't know, it just reminds me that some of my favorite Rigel character development stuff has been with Aaron. Yeah, yeah, it really has. It also made me think a little bit about um, not just Rigel coming more into the soldier life, but also with John coming into more of the soldier life because throughout this episode, at the beginning of the episode when they're when they're making like an army and just throughout the taking over the base, he's very competent with the weapons. He's holding a pulse cannon right alongside of her. They're covering each other. They're doing that whole clear a building thing that you see. And he's so much more competent at all of this than he used to be. And he has really come into being a soldier mm-hmm. and a fighter alongside Aaron. And she's, she's taught him that mm-hmm. this little, little army that they actually have made or squadron of, of infiltrating uh, soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. Their own little <laughs> Moya crew, <laughs> Moya Water mercenary crew. crew or something. Yeah. That's a good point that it, the whole crew really has had to become harder and had to become more violent, you know, mm-hmm. just because of the situations they're increasingly put into. Although Rigel actually has changed his viewpoint based on this whole experience with Aaron, Furlow really hasn't changed hers when it comes to money and when it comes to her, what essentially this device that she invented. And, you know, even though she's incredibly mercenary, I can kind of see it from her perspective where some random dude comes in and is like, hey, this work that you've been doing for a couple of years now where you invented a way to travel in wormholes, we're going to destroy it. So Mm -hmm. she and Jack actually kind of get into it because she doesn't really understand why wormholes would inherently be dangerous. Understand how dangerous this technology can be? A wormhole isn't just a shortcut through space. It can be turned into a weapon of incredible destruction. We can't let the Scarens have that kind of power. Okay, so we uh, turn around and sell it to the peacekeepers. Maybe the Nabari too. Balance of power and a wee clean up. Potential for disaster is too great. The danger is clear. It isn't clear to me. You know, I think all this high-minded talk is a pile of dren. And you're just trying to take out a competitor. 
I speak the truth. Oh, yeah? And why should I believe you? Where do you get all this cosmic knowledge? Who are you to tell me what I should do? So, Furlow has pulled a gun on Jack, and he re shows her his true form, and that kind of freaks her out a little bit. And ultimately, the resolution is Aaron walks in with a gun and forces her to put her gun down. But it's this, you can hear in the, in the clip there that there's this fundamental morality and worldview difference between the two sets of folks. And we've really talked about furloughs a lot. And then we have Jack being like, in, it's not just about protecting the ancients, but it's about keeping this weapon out of the hands of people who would, who would do great harm with it. And a little bit later, that part that I didn't pick up in the quote because it was going on too long, it's like it destroys planets, it can destroy suns, it can destroy all sorts of things just because of moving things from one place to another at speed through a wormhole just inherently makes it like, you know, a big giant ball of, of something you're throwing at something else, you know, mm -hmm. at high speed. That came out really poorly. But, you know, high speed baseball can kill you, basically. Well, we and we saw that in self-inflicted wounds. I mean, the, the Interon's ship wasn't inherently, you know, bad. They weren't trying to make a weapon. And yet still they managed to almost destroy both of them. So, yeah, the Pathfinders. Or the Pathfinders. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I said Interons. Because Jewel is Interon. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's okay. In a lot of ways, this maybe feels, and I think unintentionally, it kind of feels like Manhattan Project a little bit, although there they were trying to make a weapon. But I think that the weapon that they made was a lot bigger and a lot more deadly than anybody could have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what's going on here is that furlough is essentially like this isn't bad i don't know what you're talking about because in her experience wormholes are this tiny little podunk of a module can maybe get from one place to another place really quickly and mm -hmm. then it's and jack is kind of coming at it from the perspective of this is incredibly dangerous and you kind of get the feeling although they never go into it i kind of got the feeling that it is from experience that yeah. his species and maybe the other species, you know, because the species is really old, that w somebody was wiped out by this or they. Yeah. Know. And that's and that's why they're so protective of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of I, I really get that sense, too. So maybe this is a good place to talk about the title of the episode. Mm -hmm. It's called Infinite Possibilities, but the subtitle is Daedalus Demands. And in Greek mythology, Daedalus is an inventor and a craftsman. And he's the one who invented the labyrinth that the Minotaur was in on Crete. And the labyrinth itself protected the Minotaur and made it, you know, that much more difficult for Theseus to kill him. And he eventually is locked up for his knowledge of labyrinth. And I think here, you know, wormholes are a pathway. They are, they are this thing that can cause great harm and kind of like the, so the invention, they are the invention here that Daedalus has made that furlough has made and now they're discussing what to do about it mm -hmm. and how do you deal with this knowledge that is now out in the world and how do we keep it out of the hands of other people yeah and this gets into the second episode but also the other legend that Daedalus is known for is the Icarus legend where he invented something for a purpose which was he invented wings to get free 
And yet his invention caused him great harm because it caused the death of his son. Yeah. You know, and usually the Icarus legend is obviously used to kind of say, don't fly too close to the sun. But I think that also you can look at it from Daedalus's perspective, which is just the immense guilt, you know, Mm -hmm. of having created something so dangerous. And so you kind of see furlough here as the Daedalus before his son dies, as, you know, the somebody who's the inventor yeah the inventor who's creating something that should be amazing wings to get out of the you know to get out of prison and doesn't really see the potential danger in it yet Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and we'll get much more onto the icarus side of it when we get to the next episode but yeah it's this whole question of in the manhattan project reference too is like what have we created and and what do we do about it now that it is created Mm -hmm. and that's really grappled with in the second episode. So maybe we'll just leave that for the moment. But this is the first the first kind of discussion around what should we do here? Yeah. So at that moment, someone begins hacking into Furlow's computer because she said that one reason that the chariots didn't kill her is because they wanted access to her computer, which was password protected. Scarens don't bother with the password. They just start hacking her computer. <laughs> Yep. And it turns out that it's the Scarin Dreadnought that's on its way that is now basically downloading all of her data and information on the wormhole stuff that she has used to build the the Farscape module and this phase stabilizer. So now we are in the situation where the Scarins have the information or at least the building blocks and blueprints to recreate the research if they wanted. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, okay, now we're really in trouble because now we need to kill this scared dreadnought, which is twice the size of a command carrier, mm-hmm. too. Yep. Things are not looking good for our heroes. <laughs> Things look very bad. Because up until now, it's kind of been like, okay, well, we just have to keep the Cherids away. And then worst comes to worst. If we can't keep them away, we're just going to blow everything up, you know? But now they actually have to do something. They actually have to defeat this dreadnought. And it just adds another it adds even more of an impetus that they're going to have to do something. So at this moment, John and Jack have already had this conversation where Jack revealed like, oh, hey, by the way, we dropped this knowledge into your subconscious. And John finally got to have it out with them where he was like, why did you do that? And John already knew this, but you could tell that he just wanted to hear Jack say it, which was essentially like, if you can't figure this out on your own, then you're probably not smart enough to have it, which is Mm -hmm. kind of, it actually does make sense to me given how dangerous wormholes are. Because if you can't figure it out, then you can't figure out how dangerous they are. Yeah. And this is, you know, it's the whole learning to crawl before you can run thing or before you can walk thing. But the other thing that's interesting about that conversation is Jack doesn't know that John knows about the information. And John has this very like, closed off body language about it and I feel like he's just thinking about you put this information in my head and it caused me so much pain and torture in the Aurora chair with Scorpius and my life being turned upside down for over a cycle and having his brain dissected and having to kill Aaron and all the stuff that happened in season two every single one of those things was at core kind of the ancient's fault mm-hmm. and i just feel like there's this this tension in john like he ultimately just kind of gets over it and moves on but there's this the way ben browder is standing the way he's emoting it's just i feel like that's right under the surface there mm-hmm. yeah and i and jack obviously doesn't know any of that because john doesn't tell him 
But at the, and because we've already clarified that Jack is so weak that he can't actually read John's mind anymore. So it all is just kind of whatever Jack knows is because John tells him essentially. So mm-hmm. it is a really interesting conversation. It is a really interesting moment because it, it, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the conversation that John and Crace have at the end of season one, where he's finally able to confront Crace, who caused him like three quarters of a season of agony and pain because he was chasing him and trying to kill him and trying to put him in prison and trying to torture him and his friends. But by the time he has that conversation with Grace, there's a bigger enemy. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this conversation feels like, is it feels like good because ja- John really needed to kind of have it out with Jack and say, you don't really understand what this knowledge did to me, but it caused me a lot of pain. Why did you do it? And he needed to hear jo- Jack's reasoning. But at the same time, it wasn't really satisfying because there's this external threat that's a lot bigger. I mean, John and Crace's case, it was Scorpius. And in this case, it's the Scare and Dreadnought. Mm-hmm. And John can't walk away from that. Mm-hmm. And this is also the point where he tells Jack about Harvey. And like, because what Jack wants to do is activate that knowledge and turn the phase stabilizer into oh, something that can trigger the wormhole weapon or make a weapon out of a wormhole mm-hmm. and use that to kill the Scarin Dreadnought. John's like, okay, but I've got Harvey. What do I do about that? And Jack's like, well, I can kill Harvey for you. Mm-hmm. So we are at the end of the episode or near the end of the episode. And the chariots are starting to make more of them are coming up outside. Rigel gets hit by a mortar. So he's in bad shape. We haven't really touched on Stark and Crace, but they're back on Talon and they're having trouble with Talon's systems and Crace is convinced that something is wrong. And then we have Jack going into John's mind and helping him give enough mental energy to fight off Scorpius or Harvey, who is in his mind. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to play the conversation that that Harvey has with John. And so Harvey has appeared, this is his second appearance, and his first appearance was when Jack first arrived and was in his mind. It was like, don't tell him about me. Mm-hmm. And now he's told him about him. So now Scorp- or Harvey is fighting for his life. And they're on a roller coaster on Coney Island. It's actually the third time, though. Because the third time? Yeah. John gets okay. knocked out in one of the Scarin assaults <gasps> right. after Jack tells him, oh, we can get rid of Harvey. You and me both, we can get rid of Harvey. Yes. And John gets knocked out and Harvey shows up and Harvey's like, if if you kill me, I'm going to take you down with me. That's right. So it, I forgot about that one. It gives John's decision to continue going through with this. It gives it a lot more weight because there is this possibility. We have seen the neuro the neuro clone's ability to stop John's heart, to do all these dangerous things. So... I don't know. It is very nerve-wracking. So here they are on a roller coaster. We're going for a little ride. You don't have to do this, John. I, I, I pose you no threat. Right. I happen to know that the wormhole knowledge is still inside your brain. But I don't want it. Your other half does. Well, he has a copy. But whether he knows how to make use of it is not my concern. Therefore, there's no reason to get rid of me. Yeah, there is. Oh, it's the truth, John. I don't want to overtake you. I'm happy to coexist. I'm not. Oh, stop this, John. I've helped you countless times. I've even saved your life. Save yourself. You don't get brownie points for that score. Oh, and I can help you now. That alien, he 
I think what I find most interesting about how Harvey is trying to talk his way into staying alive is how he says that I am part of you. Like you can't get rid of me because I'm so integral to you now. You'll never be rid of me. Mm -hmm. And it's just, he is a separate entity that is in John's head, but he is also not a physical entity. He is neurons, right? Mm -hmm. And even after he's gone, like his influence will still remain with John just from, you know, the trauma of having had someone else in your head. Mm -hmm. John will forever be changed by having had the neuroclone and then Harvey within him. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Because at this point, Harvey is also trying to convince John of his usefulness. Oh, I'm useful to you. Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you more about Jack. Jack is just using you. And kind of the desperation there. But you get the feeling that as useful as Harvey can be to John, and we saw that in, for example, Scratch and Sniff, not with this John, but with the Moya John, that he can be really useful. But, you know, he's still the parasite. He's still the part of the neural clone that did kill Aaron. You know, there's like a lot going on there. Yeah, and a lot of baggage associated with him, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... The episode ends with, it uh, turns out a Scarin was aboard Talon, which comes and attacks Crace and, and Stark. Rigel has some shrapnel in his gut and he's bleeding out. And then Jack and John both collapse after this, you know, after John essentially drops both him and Harvey into a mental wormhole. And then John wakes up, but it's not John, it's Scorpius John. Mm -hmm. And Aaron is right there, and she's holding a gun to his head. Mm -hmm. It's very tense. Very tense. And then it cuts the credits. And you're like, no! <laughs> but it's okay, because it's part one of two, and you only had to wait a week instead of two weeks for it. So, yeah. That's, that's uh, Daedalus demands. So, what did you think of the episode? I like it a lot. Uh, as far as a rating, probably a four, four and a half. It's got a lot of really good character moments between John and Aaron. It's got the awesome Rigel stuff. It's got this really chunky mess of the wormhole plot, which is a major plot line of the show as a whole. And it's got furlough in it. And it's it's pretty good. It holds together really well. And, and I like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would give it almost a four and a half, five. You know, it's really high for me. The action is really, really good um, as kind of a contrast to relativity, which the action was just kind of a mess. Like all the action here is like really well edited. It, you know, you understand all of the battles that are happening. You understand all of the gunfights that are happening. Furlough is great. I love furlough. <laughs> and it's really great to kind of see two of our favorite one-offs of, you know, Jack the Ancient and Furlough getting to interact. It almost feels like Yeah. You know, it almost feels like fanfic of like somebody was like, "Hey, what if we got Jack and Furlough in a room together?" <laughs> you know? Um and yeah. you have Crace here. I, I don't know, Crace being likable, you know, I'll be honest, mm -hmm. like both of these episodes have a Crace that I really like. Yeah, and we'll talk a lot more about Crace in the next episode. We kind of gave him and Stark a short shrift here because there's so much else going on. Crace and his care for Talon is something that really comes through, especially at the beginning of the episode, too. Mm -hmm. And then the Rigel stuff is just great, you know? 
Yeah. It's a lot yeah. of fun. So let's see. On Wardrobe Watch, the only character that really changes clothes at all is John, and that's in his mental, when he's with Scorpius, where Scorpius is dressed like Evil Knievel, and John is dressed in his Ayasa suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the bumper cars. And then I think in the wormhole, he's actually just in a black t-shirt, or the roller coaster, he's just in a black t-shirt. Mm-hmm. So yes, good episode. Next week is Infinite Possibilities Part 2, Icarus Abides. Mm-hmm. And it's also it's also a good one. Definitely worth watching. Yeah, yeah. If you like us, please rate us on iTunes. Um, you can find us at Farscape Friday Podcast. We are Farscape Friday Podcast at Dreamwith, Tumblr, and at gmail.com. And we are Farscape Friday on Twitter. We will see you next week. Bye.